You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 49. This week, we're chatting with William Reach, the deputy director at the Sophia Science Center at NASA Ames. If you're new to the podcast, Sophia is a fancy acronym that stands for the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, but it literally is a flying telescope in a modified Boeing 747. Sophia and its team are back in Christchurch, New Zealand to observe the skies over the Southern Hemisphere for seven weeks. Researchers are studying objects that aren't visible from the Northern Hemisphere and are taking advantage of the long winter nights. Targets of interest include a supernova, as well as a star formation in two nearby galaxies. Uh, Sophia will also chase the shadow of a Kuiper Belt object called MU69, which is the New Horizons spacecraft's next flyby target. If you remember, New Horizons is famous for its flyby of Pluto back in 2015. Sophia will observe MU69 as it passes in front of a background star to better understand its structure and more. So, to talk about all that and more, here is William Reach. We always started off the same way, is we want to know what brought you to NASA, how did you end up in Silicon Valley? Tell us about yourself, Bill. So I've been working in uh, working in astronomy because I wanted to do it since I was a kid, uh-huh. a little kid, like five, four years old, actually, is what my parents tell me. Nice. Yeah. And uh, working on NASA missions because that's, uh, that's where the exciting science was happening. Yeah. It, it just, it, when I was going to college already, uh, I was meeting people who are working in space science, mm-hmm. working actually on the predecessor of SOFIA, which which we'll talk about, I guess, <laughs> uh, and developing developing instruments for it. So cool. one, one thing led to another. So before getting too much into SOFIA, because we fortunately on the podcast, you know, being here and having the, the science part of SOFIA run out of NASA Ames, mm-hmm. it's like we've, we've been fortunate to get a lot of people talking about a the flying telescope right, right. but so are you originally from this area are you from california or no i grew up in uh, atlanta georgia oh nice yeah and right. my, yeah my father was a, a west point army guy so i moved around a lot okay when i was when i was younger but most of my childhood was in atlanta georgia oh cool so evolving out from that and into uh into academic world was a was a first for the people that i i was hanging out with but you're always super into like looking up at the stars i guess no matter where you moved <laughs> i just always was it's not not clear but it's wired into my brain somehow oh excellent so did you go to school out here or what, how did that work out so from it from atlanta i went up to to, to Cornell University in New York. Did my undergraduate there. I got a bachelor's degree in physics. Nice. It, was a, it was a great school. And, of course, the reason I went there was so that I could be in the place where Carl Sagan was. Of course. the time when I was looking for a school to go to was when the Cosmos series was yeah. first coming out. I was already interested in astronomy, mm-hmm. even before then. But seeing Carl Sagan was just a tremendous uh, tr- enticement to continue in the field. And going out there trying to be close to him was... Uh, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was part of my reason. Did you end up going, like, were you looking at academia after that point? Or was it like... I'm going straight to NASA. How does that transition work from, you know, no. school loving space and yeah. into like landing a job? Yeah, I, th- I mean, there was a time early on when I thought uh, being an astronaut would be cool. And apparently, a lot of people most. do. There's yeah. a lot of people do. <laughs> we noticed I forgot the number of applicants I for was that like, program. Like Thirty thousand something, and it may be wrong, but right. yeah. Lots. Yes, <laughs> we can say. And selection rates very hard, and yeah. uh, and I I realized that I'm. 
I'm actually probably a better service to humanity and better suited to <laughs> me is the more purely academic. So, uh, so I, I was pretty good at it. I felt I felt in my home there. Yeah. Whereas the astronauts are a little more uh, athletic and uh, and, <laughs> and physical and uh, often having a military background, which while interesting wasn't exactly my forte. So, uh, so yeah, the, the translation went from being a college interested in space. Yeah. Uh, Finding an undergraduate internship uh, okay. with someone in the astronomy department, that was probably where where it was decided in some <laughs> sense or fated uh, that yeah. I'd end up working on NASA stuff, even though it was at a university setting because mm-hmm. they were doing the instrument development for, for Kuiper Airborne Observatory. Mm-hmm. And for Kuiper, explain that a little bit. So that was, yeah. uh, so that was an airborne telescope. Okay. Uh, and the principal investigators could develop uh, – infrared instruments, measure new spectral lines, uh, measure the brightness at wavelengths that that hadn't been done before or couldn't be done from the ground. Nice. Uh, And it was actually in the days when computers were pretty crude. Okay. So so I was brought in as uh, as a young guy. I didn't know anything about I, I did a little <laughs> bit of soldering in the lab, but I don't. Electronics is actually still mysterious to me. <laughs> nice. But the computer the stuff. The cosmos, you're good. You got the this. Cosmos is good. You all about the heavenly bodies. Oh, yeah. That's all right. Actually, <laughs> soldering a motherboard. So could they. No, no, I still can't <laughs> no. do soldering. Electronics is is, uh, is a mystery. It's <laughs> Nice. But I could do the computer stuff that the older people in the group uh, okay. didn't know how to do. Like we couldn't, we couldn't communicate from one one part of the lab to the other. Oh, wow. Uh, so we'd work on the computer on our department computer and then want to get it on the instrument that, ac- I mean, excuse me, on the computer that actually controls the instrument. So okay. that would be this little little uh, few board mm-hmm. uh, personal, com- well, not even personal computer, but it's a very small computer and then couldn't do that. So we actually had to do it via telephone just from one part of the lab to the other. Oh, wow. Just hook them both up to modems and have them talk to each other. And So I, I was just... I was doing that, yeah. and, and because it was interesting, and I realized that getting out of the atmosphere and going into space was the way to study a part of the universe that had been very little explored. That was what drove me to NASA. And so, when you joined NASA, I'm guessing was it straight working on Sophia? No, 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 no. I went to grad school, Berkeley, so I moved to the Bay Area. I live. I nice. lived here six six years then, um, when I was doing grad school, and that was on. Space infrared uh, data archival. Okay. I wasn't working on the missions, but we were at the we were using the data. I was working on IRAS, the first infrared all sky um, survey. Nice, you did that off the top of your head. Yes, <laughs> infrared astronomical satellite. Oh, nice. Okay, you can do backronyms uh, any different way. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, was working on IRAS, and the data from that were so good. And that you could see so many things, including background radiation mm-hmm. or background light, and study it in ways that were not possible before. So when you pivoted over to, to NASA, you're, you're starting to work on SOFIA. I, I get a kick out of it because you always hear about the space telescopes, Kepler, you know, um, Hubble. And then there's also the land-based ones. And I get a kick out of SOFIA because it's in that, you know, it's an airborne telescope. So yeah. for folks listening, give them the SOFIA 101. What exactly is SOFIA? People are listening for the first time. So the the most basic thing is we put telescopes as high as we can. Yeah. We put telescopes on mountaintops to get above 
the low Earth's atmosphere. We put them in space. Space is the place. That's where I'd rather Ideally. be working. I don't want to be working on Sophia. I want to be working in space. <laughs> yeah. But space expensive. Is, is far expensive, <laughs> hard, and challenging, and the, uh, the the cycle of technology is, is slow. So we try – there's this intermediate ground. We, we're very much higher than the mountaintops. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'd crash into them. Yes, obviously. <laughs> so – so we're at about 41,000 feet, just a little higher than a normal 747 goes mm-hmm. on its uh, passenger flights. But we're very much less than space. So it's it's in that middle ground. So there's a lot of windows where just that bit, what's three times higher than mountains, just that bit does it. And even a 14,000-foot mountain is a lot better than a 10,000-foot <laughs> mountain. Yeah. So they really it really does help. Well, and it's an, an interesting aspect to it because you think of Hubble is one of those rare few examples where you have a space telescope that could be repaired and fixed after the fact. Most of the time, you send it up into space and you're stuck with whatever hardware you designed for it years before when it was formulated and launched and built. Yeah. But the cool thing about Sophia, I mean, it's on an airplane. So your instrumentation, you know, you go up, you land. And you can update and switch out instruments. Yeah, that's right. And, and we have calls for instruments every okay. every few years. So we're on our third generation instrument is being developed now. And that's on the U.S. side. And then on the German side, I, f- I didn't even mention it's a German-U.S. Uh, partnership. Okay. On the German side, they've been upgrading their instruments too. So we have third generation, both U.S. and German instruments uh, being developed. And yes, it's pushing the cutting edge. The German instrument, for example has upgraded from being a single pixel, a single mm-hmm. beam, to now being an array. Oh, and wow. at each pixel, at, at each of the horns of their array, is much more sensitive than the original. And that's just in a few years. Mm-hmm. And actually, every year, they have something a little different. So they've, they went from one to now 14 pixels, and then now they have a, an array at a new wavelength that they, they just tried, actually. Oh, uh, wow week before last was the first uh, the first light flight for that combination of instruments. So we can do seven beams of one spectral line and 14 of another. A little technical, but the point is that yeah. it's, it's pushing the cutting edge, as you were saying, and we can change it. And year by year, there are significant changes. And looking into the next, you know, coming up right now, I mean, we, we do record this in the past, hmm. so this oh, yeah. is in the future. Right. Um, but, you know, you guys are getting ready to head off to New Zealand. That's right. And as I understand, you guys were even in, you were in New Zealand last summer as well, right? Or yes. Around the same time. We've, we've done four, well, this will be our fourth New Zealand deployment. We go in the summer of our hemisphere. I guess it's the winter it's of winter the southern hemisphere. Yeah, the, the cold season, whatever you call it. Uh, we go there for many reasons. So that includes the fact that the nights are longer. That's an obvious one. Yeah. It's we, we need darkness in order to see to see the sky and the guide stars that we use to control the telescope. We also benefit a lot from cold weather uh, because the ice is frozen, the water is frozen. Water is the thing that we're trying to get above. Yeah, above the water vapor. Yeah. Yeah. It also helps to be at more extreme latitudes because the Earth's atmosphere is thinner as you go towards the pole. It's just because the rotation of the Earth spins and makes it pushes the gas out by centrifugal force, just speaking quickly. And that makes the atmosphere thicker in the tropics. It's also, it's thicker, hotter. Every, it, it, <laughs> atmospherically, it's way bad to be in the tropics, but it's nicer to be out towards the poles. So that's nice. Okay. And then the number one reason, saved, saved for last, is that you can see the southern sky, which you can't see from here. And even the parts of the southern sky that we can see, like the constellation Sagittarius. Mm-hmm. 
you can see it. I can see it from my driveway, but it's pretty low. Yeah. And when it's that low, it's not up very long, and you're looking through a lot of the Earth's atmosphere to get to it. Yeah. But from New Zealand, it goes almost overhead. It's so it goes very high, and we can observe it for hours at high altitudes. And, and since you guys are going back, is this like a follow-up kind of deployment? Or you oh, just, why do we go over and over? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have more to do. <laughs> <laughs> we can learn from what you did last time, I'm sure. Well, and there's because there's new developments, so this time, one of our focus points is going to be mapping using this uh, new German instrument, the 14-pixel array. We're going to okay. be mapping the galactic center. That's one of our things. Okay. So before, we have observed it. We've made some nice spectra. We've made some limited amount of reconnaissance. But now we can actually do larger-scale mapping, so a, sh- a strip that goes through. I mean, it'll take, it'll take forever to map the whole place. <laughs> so there's always more real estate to do. But even for the most important part, most important in some people's minds. Well, yeah. But the interesting part that's very close <laughs> yes. to the uh, central bl- uh, black hole in the middle of the Milky Way, uh, we can map the whole thing in these important spectral lines. So uh, looking at, you know, going to New Zealand on this deployment, do you normally take like multiple instruments? Or are you primarily focusing on this new German update? Or, or uh, how does that work? Do you switch them out? You know, how does that happen? So we have brought, we brought that German instrument every time. Okay. Uh, so we also have a mid-infrared camera that we take. We have a uh, far-infrared integral field spectrograph that we take. And then we have an optical camera and a near-infrared camera. So we've taken quite a few instruments down there. This year, we're taking three. We're taking two far-infrared instruments the and the mid-infrared camera. Uh, one, one of them stays on the telescope as we fly. The, they're going to take off on June 21st. They'll fly to Hawaii and then refuel and then continue down to uh, Christchurch with one, one instrument on the telescope and two down in the underbelly and, and packed up. And all the, all the equipment is, is already en route. Some of it has already arrived. Like the computer people are already there setting up. And so we have some equipment in fact, uh, pre-staged, like there's forklifts. We even have a spare engine uh, that Air New Zealand maintains for us oh, down wow. there. Yes. So the reason to bring all these different instruments down there is because we want to do very different things. Besides mapping galactic center and similarly mapping the nearby galaxies that are satellites to our own, the Magellanic Clouds, we also have unique time-sensitive opportunities. So last year, we observed an occultation of Pluto. And by occultation? So that's when Pluto went in front of a star. Nice. So it's like an eclipse yeah. or, you know. And cast a shadow. Yeah. And we, uh, we, we flew through the shadow. And then this year, we have a very high, uh, high stakes or uh, mm-hmm. high benefit occultation that we're going to observe. There's a, the, new, the NASA New Horizons spacecraft is en route to a target after its highly successful encounter yeah, with Pluto. Pluto and- it's continued on, and it's going to explore this new object, which we know as MU69, after okay. its full name of 2014 MU69. <laughs> the New Horizons spacecraft is en route to this object now, about which we know very little. It's small. They intentionally chose something that's very different from anything else we've ever tried. Okay. So because we know so little about it, the fact that it can be observed by any method from the ground is of great benefit. Yeah. And Sophia's going to observe it just using the guide camera, actually. We're not even going to bring one of our wonderful uh, high-sensitivity infrared instruments. Mm-hmm. We're going to use the guide camera to stare at the star that this object, MU69, is going to pass in front of and mm-hmm. just watch it get get fainter and come back again. 
and we'll we'll be looking for any stuff that's near that object. Okay. If it had rings or if it had a cloud of debris around it, then we would see that before the shadow went completely dark because the object's in front of the star, we'd see some blips. So some decreases in brightness. So if we see those and we so we see evidence of material near that object, then that's a significant hazard to the New Horizons spacecraft. So the the flight team really wants to know. And okay. scientifically, we're very interested in the, the same reason that they're going there, because yeah. we don't know much about it. I was going to say, this also isn't the first time that it's kind of been the Sophia New Horizons tag team. I think even before New Horizons got to Pluto, uh, we had um, Kim Eniko came over and was talking about how she was at that time working on, like when she was working on New Horizons, that Sophia was able to look at Pluto in advance of right before New Horizons arrived. So it's like this tag team of instrumentation just helps to better understand things. It certainly does. And it's, and it's nice to be able to use one NASA asset to help another. And the study of these outer solar system objects mm-hmm. is really a multi-telescope, uh, multi-wavelength, multi-method. So it goes all the way from combining cameras that have to be designed to work very fast during a flyby to the largest ground-based telescopes. So in addition to Sophia's observation of the occultation, mm-hmm. um, which we did for Pluto and will do for this MU69 object, Hubble Space Telescope is very much involved in this. Oh, awesome. Yeah, we have many, many orbits of Hubble Space Telescope going into helping to characterize exactly where it is. We want to find out whether it's binary. Mm-hmm. And then for to assist with the occultation observations, they're doing observations of the stars that the object is going to go in front of to find out if those stars are binary and exactly where they are. So we've we've been using the, well, we have current and ongoing observations with Hubble up until the week before. And then the investigators <laughs> yeah. will have flown down to New Zealand and they're going to be down there in country reducing the latest data to figure out exactly where this object is going to be and where we fly to get into the shadow. So when you head on down, to, when you head to New Zealand, you're working on this. I'm guessing it's for a period of like a couple of weeks, a couple of months. What does your day-to-day look like? You wake up, drink your coffee, and then head up on the plane and spend a couple hours in there? And, when, and how does that work? Well, we observe at night. So Okay, yeah. So, yeah. so, the, <laughs> so, so the, you drink your coffee at like 8 p.m. <laughs> so there, there, there's many different kinds of uh, crew working on this. Okay. We have... The flight crew. The yeah. flight crew, they wake up um, in the early afternoon, mm-hmm. and then they check their emails and, and <laughs> drink their coffee. Yes. <laughs> Got to have that. And then they go to the crew briefing, get on board the plane, do their business, and then, yeah. and then they come down. The flights are 10 hours. So oh, the, wow. And we need them to be in tip-top shape in order to do subsequent flights. So we, we restrict their duty days not to be too long. That's why they they pretty much wake up, do the briefing, and and get on the plane. Yeah, really. (laughs) So that's the flying crew. There's ground crew. There are people who swap the instruments out, who receive the airplane, refuel, can replace engines, you know, can can do that kind of work. They work uh, pretty much a a regular schedule. They they receive the plane. They have to be there to to receive the plane. In the morning. (laughs) And then they have shifts. Okay. Then there will be some science crew that doesn't fly. So, for example, I'll be... I'll be down there, and I'll be on the MU-69 flight and one or two others, but not a lot. I'll be there doing tours and, uh, uh, and science support. So when the, when the night crew lands and they say, so-and-so and so-and-so didn't work, the observations of these two targets didn't work, and we don't think we should do any more of those, then someone has to figure out what else should we do instead. 
Right. So in that sense, there's three different kinds of, of workday. So looking into this, this deployment, returning, what are you looking forward to the most? Or what is the most interesting? What are, you, what are you hoping to learn that's different from what you didn't know this time that you're excited to learn about or, or discover, I suppose? It's always hard to pick one thing. <laughs> nice. Because we ha- we, I'm engaged with a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the observers. I know that they have high hopes to, mm-hmm. that their project is going to do well. I look very much forward to seeing these uh, new images of the Galactic Center very nervous and excited about getting these the occultation to work out because it is coordinated among really so many people in so many different uh, walks of life to to make that happen i'm interested in the observations of the galactic center that will actually be made with two instruments not just the 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 terahertz spectrograph but also the integral field spectrograph so yeah it's all interesting <laughs> to me the reason yeah. I, the reason I came to to work in infrared astronomy and and that I'm at a leadership level now is because I know the mm-hmm. field well and so it's easy to get your heart set on yeah. many different things at once so, so I don't really have a, a single yeah well I'm sure stand. there's like well there, there's the things that you're hoping to discover but I'm sure there's a lot of surprises that happen along the way yes you know things that you end up finding out but I also imagine you're collecting data from these observations but it's like I'm sure months, years after the fact, people are still sifting through stuff and papers get written after the fact yeah. by combining other information together. So Yeah, usually you have a you have a decent idea if it was something bright and if it's something weird, yeah. then you can know that on the plane. But for most experiments, they're pretty hard. If they weren't hard, we would not be doing yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. You would have already been done or you could do it from the ground. So we, we intentionally do things that are pretty hard. Oh, and if the object is really so bright and you observe it 10 times longer than you need, then you can make a beautiful image. But we don't actually just make beautiful images. We actually want to detect new things. So everyone has tuned their experiments to just pretty much barely get what they need. And so they can look for discoveries, but they do generally need some time. And so the typical time to go from an observation back to a publication mm-hmm. is about two years, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. So for folks who are interested in learning more about Sophia and following Bill's adventures in New Zealand, we are at NASA Ames on Twitter, but we're also at Sophia Telescope as well. In fact, anybody who listens to the podcast, from time to time you'll hear some of the stories about Sophia uh, read by our very own Cassandra. So she'll be there with Bill following everything and has a lot of adventures and things planned, whether it's a Facebook Live, Snapchat, all that interesting stuff. And we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So if anybody has questions for Bill, we'll hook you guys up so that we can get those back to you. But thanks for coming. This has been way fun. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure.